Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 47 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, was Jesus rejected by an innkeeper and actually born in a stable or not? So Merry Christmas, everybody. Today's readings begin with Genesis chapter 49, which largely consists of Jacob slash Israel's blessing over his boys and Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. As we might expect from one such as Jacob slash Israel, the blessing is very, very strange and kind of unique in several ways, including where he calls out his eldest son for sleeping with his concubine slash wife. Hashtag awkward family moments. Job 15 features some more inaccurate drivel from Job's wrong, according to God, friend Eliphaz, who fat shames the wicked with this passage. Though his face is covered with fat, and his waistline bulges with it, he will dwell in ruined cities and abandoned houses destined to become piles of rubble. He will no longer be rich, his wealth will not endure, his possessions will not increase in the land. That's verses 27 and 29 of our reading today. Not cool, Eliphaz, not cool. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul again addresses the issue of unity in the church, pointing out that picking certain people and following them instead of Christ is a sure and dangerous sign of spiritual immaturity. Our focus passage for today is Luke chapter 2, and so today we are celebrating Christmas in February. It's a tale as old as time, true as it can be. Everybody knows that Joseph and Mary, after a long and trying donkey ride, tried to stay at an inn in Bethlehem and ended up staying instead in an animal stable because there was no room for them in the inn, right? Not so fast, my friend. It may be just that our understanding of the birth of Jesus might need a few tweaks. Let's go read Luke chapter 2 and then come back and consider it. Luke chapter 2 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tight in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. 
When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Hey, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord's made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you have promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them huh? and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to call the, cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for eighty-four years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was twelve years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers." When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? he asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? 
But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. So notice the Christian Standard Bible translation of Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. What we have here is evidence that New Testament scholars have realized something fairly important about the birth of Jesus. There may not have been an inn involved at all. Hold up, I hear some of you saying. Are we implying that the Bible is wrong? Absolutely, positively not at all. Others are saying, hey, the King James Version says in, and that was good enough for Moses, and it was good enough for Paul, and it's good enough for me. And it's true. The King James Version, among many other modern versions, says in. For instance, King James Version of Luke 2.7 says, She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, our issue here today is an extremely minor one in terms, in the sense that it doesn't affect any sort of theology, but it is a terribly interesting issue too. And I want to be very clear, this is not an issue of inerrancy, this is an issue of translation. And those who hold to the doctrine of inerrancy, in other words, that the Bible has no errors in it, which I believe to be absolutely true, the Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms, and we've discussed this on previous episodes, so when Eliphaz says something dumb in a minute, and he's going to, that doesn't mean that uh, the Bible is wrong because Eliphaz is wrong, because the Bible is not affirming the words of Eliphaz. In fact, it's rejecting the words of Eliphaz. So we who are inerrantists believe the Bible is without error in all that it affirms in the original languages. In other words, it is possible for a modern translator to make a mistake. But if a modern translator does make a mistake, that does not in any way, shape, or form mean that there is a mistake in the Word of God. It means that a modern scholar has made a mistake. And that might be what we're dealing with here. The only place in the Bible that discusses where Jesus was born is in Luke chapter 2, and there is very little information about where and when he was born. Our question of the day revolves around the Greek word katalumati, and what we have here is a translation issue. Does katalumati mean in, or does it mean something else? Now, generally speaking, the best way to answer such a question in the Bible is to consider other uses of the word in other Bible passages, especially those by the same author. Where Bible scholars have a bit of trouble pinning down the exact concept or thing meant by a particular author when he uses a particular word in Scripture is when the word is rarely or ever used in other Scriptures. There is a phrase that describes a word in the Bible that is only used in one place, and that phrase is hapax legomena. The New Testament has just under 700 hapax legomena, and the Old Testament has around 1,500. Of course, this isn't unique to 
uh, books of the Bible. Uh, hypox legomena is a concept that can appear in any language. It's what it's what translators kind of describe as as the problem they face when they're translating from one language to another, and a particular word is only used that one time. When, for instance, the book Homer's Iliad has a little over. 1,000 hapax legomena. In other words, it has a little over 1,000 uses of a word that that word is the only time it's used in that particular book. One of the most mysterious and difficult to translate words in the entire Bible is found in Jesus's prayer in both Matthew 6.11 and Luke 11.3, when he says, give us this day our and most of the time we translate it as daily bread. The Greek word there is epiousius. And most modern scholars translate epiousius as daily, meaning that Jesus is teaching us to ask for daily provision, something along those lines. But interestingly enough, many Maybe even most ancient translators and early church fathers didn't translate Epiusius that way. They translated it more along the lines of the word supernatural or something like supersubstantial. Because the word is used in the exact same context in both passages, neither use helps us understand what the word means. And here's the tricky thing. In Everything we have written in Koine Greek, which is the language the New Testament is written in, that word never occurs in any other place except with one exception, which is the Didache, which is a first century um, book that was used by the early church. And the only reason it occurs in that book is because it's quoting exactly from Matthew 6.11 and Luke 11.3. So that doesn't tell us what the word means. Fortunately, our word catalumity is not a hypox legomena, but it is only found in two other places in the New Testament. But happily, one of those places is later in the Gospel of Luke. So that's going to give us a really good idea how Luke himself uses the word catalumity. So let's look at Luke 22 verse 11. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the, and here's the word, guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Our word in question in this passage is translated as guest room, and Jesus even describes it for us. It's a large furnished room that is upstairs. That seems to be a very, very strong point in favor of not translating our word to in, I-N-N, but leaning more towards the phrase guest room as the CSB does. Now, I want to give one other bit of evidence that to me tips the scale. It's very clear that Luke and other New Testament authors have a word that they use for in, you know, I-N-N in terms of like a hotel kind of thing. And that word is... Pandokion. It's found in Luke 10.34 in the middle of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which says he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to a Pandokion, or inn, and took care of him. 
So these two bits of evidence are strong enough to me that I believe that Mary and Joseph were not rejected by an innkeeper. Of course, there's never an innkeeper mentioned in Luke chapter 2, but that the house they were planning on staying in, probably the house of one of their relatives, because that's how it worked in the first century, had a full guest room. So our next question, if Jesus wasn't born in a stable and rejected by an inn, where was he born? Well, probably not a stable. Not a single animal is mentioned in Luke chapter 2, but there is, of course, a manger, which is an animal food trough. Now, Christians outside of the Middle East for hundreds of years have assumed that Jesus was born in sort of a stable place, even though the Bible doesn't say exactly where Jesus was born. certainly doesn't say stable, but we've assumed that largely because we are unfamiliar with a typical first century Jewish house, and we believe that mangers, food troughs, belong in stables. However, there was a New Testament scholar named Kenneth E. Bailey. He lived for 60 plus years in the Middle East, and another New Testament scholar, Monty F. Shelley, they paint a different and far more persuasive picture of what's going on here. And I'm going to read you about three paragraphs from a work I have linked on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. This is what they say. Any Palestinian reading the phrase, she laid him in a manger, would immediately assume that the birth of Jesus took place in a private home because they know that mangers are built into the floor of the raised terrace of the peasant home. Typical village homes in Palestine with attached guest rooms were often an extension of a small cave if one was available. In fact, Justin Martyr records that Jesus uh, was born in a cave. This cave tradition is the universal assumption across all of the ancient Eastern Christian churches. And that's a very old thought because Justin Martyr lived in the 100s. Now, the Bible doesn't say cave, but what what uh, Kenneth Bailey and Mr. Shelley are telling us is that a lot of first century Middle Eastern homes were sort of built into cave-like structures. I'll continue. Simple village homes often had but two rooms. One was exclusively for guests. That room was attached to the end of the house or was up on the roof. The main room was a family room where the entire family cooked, ate, slept, and lived. They slept on mats that they would take up in the morning, as shown by Matthew 2, 9-11. The end of the room next to the door was either a few foot lower than the rest of the floor or blocked off. Each night into that designated area, which was a few feet lower than the rest of the house, the family cow or donkey and a few sheep would be driven. And every morning, those same animals were taken out and tied up in the courtyard of the house. A guest room was on the flat of the roof or the end of the house. The door on the lower level serves as an entrance for both people and animals. The farmer wants the animals in the house each night because they provide heat in winter and keep them safe from theft. The elongated 
circles in the drawing here that you can see on the website represent mangers dug out of the lower end of the living room. If the family cow is hungry during the night, she can eat. Mangers for sheep can be of wood and placed on the floor of the lower level of the house. Such homes can be traced from 1000 BC up to 1950 AD. So even in fairly modern times, the lifetime of some of you people listening to this, people in the Middle East lived in homes that had a lower level that you stepped down into with a manger that you brought animals into at night. Now, the animals didn't get into the upper level, but we're not talking about you have to climb up a whole story or a flight of stairs to get to it. We're talking about a few steps up. They continue, several verses imply such a house. One lamp on a candlestick gives light to all in the house, says Matthew 5.15. In other words, one candle can light up the whole thing. The woman had a fat calf in the house, says 1 Samuel 28.24. When Jephthah, in Judges 11.31, vowed to sacrifice whatever came out of the doors of his house to meet him, he expected an animal to come out first, not his daughter. Now, that still may be the dumbest thing in the entire Bible that Jephthah did, but that's a discussion for another day. After healing a woman on the Sabbath, Jesus asked, Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to watering? Now, in an ancient, very old Arabic New Testament translation, that verse says, Does not every one of you untie his ox or his donkey from the manger in the house and take it outside and water it? Early Christians believed Isaiah was referring to Jesus in the manger when he said, The ox knows his master and the donkey his owner's manger. That's Isaiah 1.3. Since the second century, an ox and a donkey have been included in art and nativity scenes. But that's not from Luke or Matthew, that's actually from Isaiah. But that manger was in a warm and friendly home, not in a cold and lonely stable. So in this understanding, Jesus would not have been born in a stable, but more of what maybe modern people in the West would call a basement or a garage. Does any of this impact anything important about the birth of Jesus of the gospel? Of course not. But it's fun, and it's kind of interesting to dig deep into the original languages of the Bible and honestly learn as much as we can about the world of Jesus. I hope that was enlightening to you. Let's go on to Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Come together and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength and the firstfruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power, turbulent as water. You will not excel, because you got into your father's bed and you defiled it. He got into my bed. Simeon and Levi are brothers, their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council, may I never join their assembly, for in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed, for it is strong, and their fury, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. 
Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Zebulon will live by the seashore and will be a harbor for ships and his territory will be next to Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the saddlebags. He saw that his resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he leaned his shoulder to bear a load and became a forced laborer. Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the road." a viper beside the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, Lord. Gad will be attacked by raiders, but he will attack their heels. Asher's food will be rich, and he will produce royal delicacies. Nephtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine beside a spring. Its branches climb over the wall. The archers attacked him, shot at him, and were hostile toward him. Yet his bow remained steady, and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel." by the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, and blessings of the breasts in the womb. The blessings of your Father excel the blessings of my ancestors, and the bounty of the ancient hills may they rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince of his brothers." Benjamin is a wolf, he tears his prey. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the plunder. These are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them. He blessed them, and he blessed each one with a suitable blessing. Then he commended them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ethron, Ephron the Hethite. The cave is in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan. This is the field Abraham purchased from Ephron the Hethite as burial property. Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried there. Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried there. And I buried Leah there. The field and the cave in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving charges to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, took his last breath, and was gathered to his people. Job chapter 15 verse 1 Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Does a wise man answer with empty counsel or fill himself with the hot east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words that so serve no good purpose? But you even undermine the fear of God and hinder meditation before him. Your iniquity teaches you what to say, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Were you the first human ever born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on the counsel of God, or have a monopoly on wisdom? 
What do you know that we don't? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the elderly are with us, older than your father. Are God's consolations not enough for you, even the words that deal gently with you? Why has your heart misled you, and why do your eyes flash as you turn your anger against God and allow such words to leave your mouth? Tisk tisk. What is a mere human that he should be pure, or one born of a woman that he should be righteous? If God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less one who is revolting and corrupt, who drinks injustice like water? Listen to me, and I will inform you. I will describe what I have seen, what the wise have declared and not concealed that came from their ancestors, to whom alone the land was given when no foreigner passed among them. A wicked person writhes in pain all his days throughout the number of years reserved for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds fill his ears when he is at peace. A robber attacks him. He doesn't believe he will return for darkness. He's destined for the sword. He wanders about asking for food, saying, Where is it? He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Trouble and distress terrify him, overwhelming him like a king prepared for battle. For he stretched out his hand against God and has arrogantly opposed the Almighty. He rushes headlong at him with his thick-studded shields, though his face is covered with fat and his waistline bulges with it. He will dwell in ruined cities and abandoned houses destined to become piles of rubble. He will no longer be rich. His wealth will not endure. His possessions will not increase in the land. He will not escape from the darkness. Flames will wither his shoots, and by the breath of God's mouth he will depart. Let him not put trust in worthless things, being led astray, for what he gets in exchange will prove worthless. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not flourish. He will be like a vine that drops its unripe grapes, and like an olive tree that sheds its blossoms. For the company of the godless will have no children, and fire will consume the tents of those who offer bribes. They consume trouble, conceive trouble, and give birth to evil. Their womb prepares deception. First Corinthians chapter three, verse one. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you're still worldly. For since there's envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For when somebody says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers." 
You are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builder builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Amen. And may the Lord bless you, my friends. I hope today has been encouraging and edifying and that the word of God will take deep root in our hearts and bear much fruit in our lives. Godspeed to you.